0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a former trauma nurse who decided to go into the real war zone of sales consulting. She's the co-founding director of DOKARU. Sarah, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. So um, fascinating history. Would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background, please?
1: Of course. So my passion is about people. So I went into the world of nursing after school and I was a trauma nurse for just under five years based in Aberdeen, where I am today. But in 2011, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. So I got booted out of nursing and had to come into the, as you called it, the real war zone of the world of business. And with being in Aberdeen, that threw me straight into industries such as oil and gas, technology. So it was quite an eye-opener. I started uh, in an admin role actually. One company was brave enough to hire an ex-nurse and figured out some of my transferable skills. So I started in admin and grew in that business, getting involved in every aspect of the business, working alongside the directors and realized that strategy and sales were the two things that I loved because they were all about people. People make things happen. People stop things from happening. Uh-huh. And I, a very relationship focused as well. And strategy, because being in trauma, everything's a strategy. Um, you don't get very much information as something's coming into the unit. And you've got a multidisciplinary team to pull together, equipment, everything. So the strategic side of business was definitely something I aligned to very quickly. So 10 years on, I now have my own business working as a management consultant with a focus in sales and marketing, revenue growth. And I love what I do because again, it's all about people and I get as much challenge today, even though it's not quite life or death anymore as I did back then.
0: Excellent. Well, it's interesting. Direct line, only recruit from caring professions. So I'm going to lead with an unplanned question, but I think one that you um, you will be able to give an interesting response to, which is, is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose?
1: So you mean when you're not an ex-nurse? You're no, talking no. About... I,
0: I'm, t- I'm talking about the traditional, well, the current traditional ideal standard for sales, money motivated, will to win, hyper-competitive. I have fairly strong views on this, but I'd love to get your take.
1: So when I first left nursing, I spoke to a lot of recruiters and was told time and time again, I don't know what to do with you, you're a nurse. Not once were transferable skills mentioned. And when I think now um, into sales, and I I got involved with a lot of sales recruitment, supporting my clients, especially with senior level roles. I start looking out with the sales profession on quite a regular basis. And what I am not looking for is competitiveness and extrinsic motivation. It's the obviously the desire and the will to sell and the commitment to doing so is important. But behind that is much more human. It's much more about the people, the relationships, the rapport, and every single thing I've learned about sales came in that respect has come from nursing everything else can be taught everything else can be trained if you're coachable but everything that is my foundation on what makes me good at what I'm do today has absolutely come from my nursing background
0: so again i couldn't agree more strongly generally people who are motivated by money either come from a deep uh, level of poverty when they were younger and they're trying to prevent that from happening again I understand it, but it is a selfish motivation and is not focused on serving the customer, their needs, and their outcomes. The other type of person who is genuinely motivated by money rather than the choices and experiences it can afford and sees it as a byproduct, generally, they are not the kind of people that I want to do business with. And without being overly generalized, I think they probably end up in boiler rooms they end up in merchant banking, investment banking, venture capital. And they're not necessarily the kind of people who will create a culture that delivers long-term client relationships where customers come back, they feel valued. So thank you for underpinning that. Let me ask you this. If you look at how what those transferable skills are, I'd be really curious um, what it's like being a trauma nurse, first of all, and the kind of process and decisions you have to go through to be a good trauma nurse and then relate that back to being a salesperson and a manager of salespeople.
1: So I think some of the transferable skills with what we've already spoken about already really comes from that nursing process. It's actually more similar to business process and sales process than most of the people listening to this will have assumed. If you think about when you enter a hospital environment, especially in an acute trauma setting, we have symptoms to deal with. And it's our job as a medical team, whether you're a nurse, a doctor, or anything else, to diagnose. And we cannot diagnose without running the appropriate diagnostic tests. That's why the first thing we do is blood pressure, cough on you, take your temperature, draw some blood, take you for a scan. And in business, we should be doing more of the diagnostic test before making assumptions of what's going on in an organization, in a sales team, or with our clients, if we're really talking about sales process. But that happens all the time. People jump into diagnosing, into treatment plans, into surgery before they've run any diagnostic tests. We see it time and time again in business. And that would be like somebody coming in after a car accident into a trauma unit, somebody making an assumption because they have a cut on their leg that it's actually broken and shipping them off to a theater for a surgery they may not require. Zig
0: Ziglar said prescription before diagnosis is malpractice.
1: Absolutely. So, within nursing, we spend quite a lot of time on diagnostic, and then it's about creating a treatment plan. But what's also good to remember is once you start the treatment plan, whether that be medication, surgery, physiotherapy, sometimes things change, and therefore the plan needs to change also. We need to pivot. I hate that word now because it's been so overused in the last few years, but that's what we're doing. You know, we're following a strategy or a process and sometimes we realize it's not really working out and we need to maybe go back and do a further diagnostic or we maybe understand because of our experience that it's time to pivot and try something different. But what I often was seeing when I first left nursing and came into the world of business was that wasn't happening. People were Making decisions without any diagnostic, purely focused on experience and often gut feel, and I often say we get married all the time on gut feel. But you have the time, you know, to date to try and do an element of qualification. But still, look at the divorce rate, when you can go into doing some diagnostics that give you some real data, something that gives a little bit more validation, then you're less likely to make mistakes and. When we're in business, and what I was seeing when I first left nursing is people were jumping into decisions and they were wasting so much time, energy, money, investment, going off on a course, and they would allow it to continue to fail and not work. And it would take them a long time to pivot. So there was a lot of lessons learned from the, that nursing process and looking for continuous improvement, looking at people, not just systems and processes, but taking that temperature of the individuals as well, understanding what really motivates somebody. What do they care about? What are their value systems? So that's probably the biggest likeness from nursing into business.
0: Well, again, you've touched on so many things there, but one of the things that uh, continues to frustrate and disappoint me, is how often salespeople are encouraged to just show up, vomit up lots of product information, and they think that that is selling. There is an acronym that anyone who is listening should be aware of. It's called STFU. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Listen. You learn nothing when your lips are moving. So shut up and listen. And then pay attention. Your customer will tell you how to sell to them if only you stop making yourself and your products and your company the issue. And what they care about are outcomes. When you go into a trauma unit as a patient, you don't care how they treat you. You want the pain to stop. You want the blood loss to stop. You want to get better. You're not going to complain if they happen, well, you might complain, if they happen to shove something up your rectum. But the the reality is there must be a reason for it. They need to do the examination. They have to take your blood pressure. They have to take your temperature. They need to ask you some questions. It's not unreasonable for you as a seller to do that diagnosis. And do not let prospects bully you into asking for the demo or tell them about your company and your products. That's irrelevant because they don't care. That's like showing up and, f- and bringing photos of your ugly children and then getting confused as to why strangers don't suddenly f- roll over in ecstasy. Now, the other piece that Sarah's touched on here is that far, far too often, when people are trained, they're trained on the wrong thing. And all the real value in learning happens out in the field. As a nurse, Whilst you might have learned a, a fair amount at medical school, it was actually on the ward or in the trauma room that you learned your craft. Fair?
1: Yeah. So when I did nursing, it, the, the process is different now, but I was pretty much trained in the unit on the ward. I also helped out on other wards, but it wasn't the same process as it is now, where you kind of leave school do your 3 year degree with 12 week placements that's why they used to have the nursing you know nursing accommodation and before even probably 8 years ago most of the teams in midwifery and nursing were actually training you know on the job and i've noticed the big difference when i've been an, an inpatient myself even recently and noticed quite a difference as to the students now and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do which is all insurance driven, obviously, um, versus what we were able to do, even as auxiliary nurses back then. And it's it's changed significantly. And like you say, the -the on-the-job training is crucial, absolutely crucial, especially when you're dealing with people. And in sales, we are dealing with people. And people focus a lot on relationships, but what they should focus on is rapport, because relationships take time. Rapport can be built very quickly, if you know how. When people, someone enters a trauma unit, often at one of the most vulnerable points in their life, I don't have time to build a relationship. But what I do need to do for them to trust me and for me to give them the best care possible is to build rapport. And that's the sort of thing that unless you're on the job, making mistakes, as we all have done, saying the wrong thing and slapping yourself over the head afterwards, You you know, you don't learn the same. It's not in a textbook. It's not theory at university.
0: So this then raises the next question, because the people who are in charge, leaders, managers, allow that kind of unproductive sales behavior. They even often encourage it. So what would you say to leaders and managers when they're taking on young, bright, capable salespeople And in that first 120 uh, days, six months, what would you say to them?
1: I think the first thing is, you know, that partly looking in the mirror, really have somebody look at your own competencies as a sales leader Mm. and give Mm. the support that you need first. Because you're not going to be able to support somebody in something that you don't understand. You don't need to know how to do it or be good at it, but you at least need to understand it. And I think a lot of the time, sales leaders are very focused on training and development of the salespeople, especially entry-level salespeople, but they actually haven't got self-awareness of their own competencies and what they need developed in. If you want a strong sales force, it starts from the top. The sales leaders, the sales managers, the experienced salespeople, and the junior salespeople all need developed, and it can't just be the junior level.
0: Hallelujah. Okay. So that look in the ugly mirror for leaders, let's start with that. What are the competencies that they absolutely have to have? What are the personal characteristics, values, and habits that they need?
1: So I think, first of all, they need to have a desire to lead. They need to be passionate about leading people if they're going to be a great leader. And they need to be committed to it. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to be bloody hard work. And it's going to be challenging and if they're not committed, they will give up and that's not going to help the team beneath below them. They also need to understand what motivates their people and have the ability to motivate using that information and understand that not everyone is motivated by the same things. Your motivations throughout life can change now and again. Depending on you know where you're at, what your responsibilities are at home, your personal circumstances. So understanding you know the basics of you know intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, for example, and really have conversations and listen, 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 listen. I can't um, say that enough to your people, you know, to your team. Don't make assumptions, just like we should do with our clients. So if they have a desire. They have, you know, a commitment. They're going to listen. They understand what motivates their people, and that they take personal responsibility as well. Instead of being that leader that's always blaming their team for everything, it drives me crazy when I speak to these people. We're speaking about, you know, lack of performance, and it's always their team's fault. What are they doing about it? And again, that comes back to building that self-awareness in as a leader and developing all the time. None of us ever know it all. We should always be striving to develop. Even if it's just listening to podcasts and reading books and things like that, that's still development, personal development. That's just really the the personal part of it. Obviously, there's some more in-depth competencies around sales and pipeline management and things, but I'm sure the individuals listening know all about that.
0: Well, the, the only thing I would take issue with in everything that you said there is that motivation is an internal force. You cannot motivate anyone to do anything ever. You can inspire, you can remind them of their motivation. And that requires you to actually pay some attention, to listen, to take the time to get to know them as human beings, understand where they are in their life, what their drivers are, what their pet peeves are, and to manage inclusively. So one of the things that I see far too often is people think that leadership is about having people follow them and it's about those people working for you. Whereas in my experience, the best leaders understand that they serve the people who work in their team. It is their job to hire the best people And to get the best out of them. If you are bad at hiring, you're lax at hiring, you leave hiring to the last minute as an interruption to your day job, then what message does that send about how much you genuinely care about the rest of the team if you bring someone on who is divisive, who is a non performer, and forces everybody else to carry more weight?
1: Absolutely. And I love what you said about they inspire, the motivate, and this leading of people. I always remember I, I attended a, an event, it's based in Atlanta in the US called LeaderCast. Um, I'd highly recommend you check it out. The content every year is amazing. And there was a speaker called Kat Cole, and she was speaking about you know, leading self before leading others, which you'll hear from many um, leadership speakers. But she spoke about the hotshot rule. So as a leader, and that's very American, she spoke about, you know, imagine that you were removed from your job. That could be as a sales leader, it could be as a wife, it could be as a daughter, all the multiple hats that we wear in our lives. And if somebody that was just as good as you, or maybe a little bit better, came into your role... What would they see that you weren't doing enough of? You know, what are the improvements that they would make? And I think within each of our roles, we know fine well, when we look deep and we build in some self-awareness, we know where we're lacking as leaders. We know where we're lacking as a friend, a, a daughter, all our different roles in life. But only we can do something about that. And I often meet with leaders that when I ask them where they need to develop, they'll give me a list. You know, they understand what they're not doing enough of. Maybe I'm not spending enough one-to-one time with my team. I'm not asking them the right questions. I'm just not feeling this role right now. You know, I'm not passionate right now. But then you say, what are you doing about it? And you realize that they've been feeling this way for the last five years and they've done nothing about it. If you want to be a great leader, yes, you need to have self-awareness, but diagnosing the problem is not enough you need to treat the symptoms. And often we need external help from people like yourself and other great coaches and consultants out there to help us with that as well.
0: And if you haven't done the diagnosis, chances are you will only treat the symptom, not the cause. And that, again, I think it's really very important to, uh, to understand. In my experience, people do not ask enough deep questions. They find the first answer that fits with their model of the world, and then they jump in and try and fix it. And this is where a lot of salespeople go awry, because they hear a symptom and they jump on it and say, oh, yeah, we can help you with the prospecting problem, when in fact, it's probably not a prospecting problem at all. The technique you can teach to a chimp, if they don't have the will to do it, if they are running psychological scripts that tell them that they shouldn't talk to strangers, that they shouldn't interrupt, that people who are busy are probably more important than them and their time is greater than theirs, so they don't have equal business status. so they always turn up putting the customer on a pedestal. And if you don't address those issues, and if they don't think what they're doing is important and meaningful work, then they will find a way to do other stuff. I can't remember who it was, we were talking about why procrastination is not a thing. It's simply a decision. If you end up watching cat videos, it's because you would rather watch cat videos than make your prospecting calls. So you have to find the reason why. And you have to find that person's motivation to tie their corporate objectives to their personal objectives. And that's what great managers and great leaders do really well.
1: And what you just said about procrastination, you often hear someone saying it, and I've said it myself before, oh, I'm definitely procrastinating over this task. But if I'm saying that, I'm self-aware of it, that I am making a decision not to do it. And I need to boot myself up the ass or someone else to do so (laughs) to help me, you know, move on that. And, you know, I think the fact that we know about it and we're making that decision shows that it isn't really a thing. It's more of a decision, like you said.
0: Uh, Absolutely. So, Sarah, talk to me about some of the blind spots that you see with regard to leadership and management.
1: Okay. So I think from a blind shot point of view, the biggest thing I'm seeing in our clients and also just people I network in business is that they're not really understanding the importance of good hiring and in sales. Um, Really, something that until they get some external support or somebody joins the organization that understands how to hire great salespeople, it, it just keeps going. You know, it's like an endless piece of rope. They hire bad sales hire after bad sales hire. They think they've learned something. They go back into the recruitment process, it happens all over again. The churn is unbelievable in sales compared to other. Professions and in some sectors, obviously more than others. I think it's, it's automotive that's three times more of a churn in salespeople than other sectors. Right. I think it's three times. Don't quote well, you will quote me on that because we're on a podcast, but don't quote <laughs> me <on> that. It's <laughs> definitely significantly more.
0: Well, the model I see, and I see this in tech a lot, hire <laughs> 10 in the hope that three work out and one remains after two years. If that is your hiring model. You're a fucking idiot. Let me, be, let me be absolutely clear about this. It costs you money, time, effort, resource, and opportunity costs to suck these poor people into your organization. Then you burn through them because of your lack of competence, your lack of willingness to ask yourself some basic, very simple, fundamental questions. Why do we do this? Yeah. Why is it even remotely close to acceptable that we can um, burn through 70% of the people that we hire in the first year and 90% of them within two years. Um, These people are going out and they are your shop window. They're the ones speaking to your customers. So you're sending out a message to your customers that you don't really care about them because they're having two or three account managers in the course of a year. And they're thinking, well, who are we going to get this week? And they're burning through all those leads, the hidden cost of all the leads and prospecting and everything else that you've just blown thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions on. You're allowing that because you're too damn lazy and too damn stupid to ask some tough questions. Mm -hmm. Okay, your number one job Number one job as a manager is to hire the best people. If you hire the best people, 95 to 98% of your management problems will disappear. You will miraculously find that you have time for the things that you say you don't have time for, like coaching. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it starts before the hiring process. Yeah. Because, you know, it's the foundation. So, a lot of businesses don't even understand what they need to hire. So what happens is they go out to market and bring in someone that they think they need, and then they end up in a completely different job doing something else that isn't their core skill set and competency set, even if they have figured out what competencies they need, which most of them haven't, let's be honest. So it's about figuring out what is the who do you have in that existing team, if it's a sales force. What are the gaps? You know, what's the culture? Who's the, who's the manager? Who's the leader that this person's going to report into? And what is required? And really mapping that out much deeper in detail than a basic job description, which is what most people then fling to HR and HR who know nothing about sales are off, you know, interviewing sales candidates. But also there are so many ways of having a data-driven approach to hiring, so that you get some predictive validation on performance. People aren't using that. People are going by gut feel. And I see it time and time again. And and I work from startups right through to large multi-billion dollar corporates. And especially in the big companies, we're seeing a lot where they'll go from 200 candidate down to five. And then the hiring manager, and this is mostly done on screening of CVs. HR people doing 10 minute interviews and some hiring managers gut feel on who they think's the right fit. And again, like I said before, we get married on gut feel, but at least we have a couple of years to, you know, get through some qualification criteria. And then they're shocked when it doesn't work out. It's crazy.
0: Right. Well, let let me add a couple of things to this because this is um, a huge bugbear for me. Why would you Use the same job description that caused you to ha- miss hire the last time. I mean, in all seriousness, if you keep beating your head against a brick wall, you cannot blame the brick for your headache <laughs> You're running down your face. Do Are you doing exit interviews to find out why this job didn't work out? Are you trying to find out what went wrong? Are you doing a proper onboarding process? Have you bothered to try and identify what are the habitual behaviors? that this person needs to do every day without fail, without having someone's boot on their neck? Do they have those habits? Are they able to learn on the hoof? Can they adapt? Do they have capabilities like listening? Why is it that almost no sales interview actually involves a salesperson doing a proper discovery with the hiring manager as the first interview? Wouldn't it be a good idea to see whether or not this person does good discovery, builds rapport, makes you feel comfortable human to human? But no, what happens? The manager fires out questions and then expects the idiot in front of them to passively respond with details from the work of fiction, which is also known as their CV. It doesn't give you any indication of what they're going to be like in the job. Make sure that you are clear about what drives them, what their motivations are. Do they have coachability? Are you testing for that in the interview by running a scenario and then giving them coaching and seeing if they respond to that coaching? Are you setting them exercises between interviews to go away and do research about the marketplace, about the competition, about the target accounts that you want them to sell into to see whether or not they can do the job? And the fair thing to do, incidentally, is to pay them for doing that project work, because you're getting a valuable piece of resource and research, and they're going to spend a day or two doing it. So pay people for doing that research. Put them under immense pressure, because the person they become under pressure is the person they will become when they're in front of a hairy ass CFO or procurement professional who's giving them a proper kicking. This stuff is not really rocket science. But you've got to stand back and ask yourself, well, why are we just doing the same old thing? And One final thing, because this really, really, really pisses me off and it'll be familiar to you, is the idea that having experience of selling a particular product or working in a particular industry adds any value. Gallup, reputable firm, did a study in 2011 that proved that experience adds zero to the outcome in terms of sales performance. The only thing it added was a slightly faster ramp-up period. OMG, the profiling uh, organization, has done over 3 million assessments. And the data science has proven that experience adds nothing, zero, zilts, nada, niente, nout, to the performance of a salesperson in role. So take experience out. Stop it. Utterly, utterly pointless.
1: Yeah, the qualification criteria that people are putting in, they almost need to remove every single one. You know, yeah. the degree that's often yep. required, not sales yep. to, just any degree, is fine. Degree qualified, we often see, well, I can pass my driving test, which could be the degree. I could have 40 years experience driving on the road, But does that make me a competent driver? My own mother is proof that that is not correct. she She writes off every car that she gets, although she'll kill me if she hears this. But, you know, when we talk about qualification plus experience equaling an amazing salesperson, it's utter nonsense. But companies are putting this qualification criteria in the way because they don't know what else to put in there because they're not aware that there are more data driven approaches or interview approaches, like you've just described, that are going to give you so so much more um, meat on the bone understanding what this individual's got to offer. I also see companies using a lot of personality assessments, profiling, and saying that all yellows are great salespeople or if they're ID, that's amazing. It doesn't mean they're going to perform.
0: No, it just tells you whether whether their personality will fit with certain people. And it also tells you how to communicate with them.
1: Absolutely. And I use them for my own team, but I also use tools that are actually competency-driven with predictive validation on performance. That's the difference. That's more of the cultural fit. How, As their manager and their leader, what do I need to know about them? How do I communicate them every day versus under pressure, as you've just said? Where do they fit into this team environment? But that's certainly... I do that after I hire them, not before.
0: Uh, well, I like to do it before, but it's part of a battery of um, behavioral and psychometrics profiles that I use in order to help me understand how best to communicate with them. And I also like to run something called motivational maps, Because understanding their individual motivation and what drives them means that as we start to, uh, we go through the hiring process, we can also start to work on career pathing. Because I'm not hiring for just this job. I'm hiring for the jobs that they can grow into, that they want to evolve into. And if all you're doing is you're hiring a salesperson for now, chances are you've created a transactional sales culture. And you're also probably thinking that uh, in all probability, they're not going to work out, which is not the best way to enter into a marriage. And then add to that the fact that you're now going to put them under immense pressure to do things that fly against their value system, like, for example, put customers under pressure, lie to them. In order to try and get deals over the line to hit your revenue number, is it any wonder that you have 80, 100, 120, 200, 300% turnover rates in Salesforce? It's just crazy.
1: And that world, you know, we speak about years of experience, but also what was that experience? Because, like you've just said, the transactional selling (laughs) environment versus the consultative selling environment, product versus service, small business to large business, enterprise level, you know, years of experience in sales is not one thing. There's so many, you know, parts of that, but again, it's an intangible, you know, it may support absolutely, just like people being hired for their black book of contacts just because you could give me the best black book of contacts in the world. But if I give that to a bad salesperson, they still ain't gonna contact them. Right. <laughs> it's not quite a database. And it's the same, I can train someone to hunt. You can give them literally a playbook step by step on how to do it. But if they have an underlying fear of being rejected, they're still not going to do it. So that's where you know people focus so much on training. And not enough on sort of coaching some of those fundamental and foundational issues that are going on within people that are going to affect performance and not getting to know their their team. So even with hiring the existing teams.
0: So talk to me about the kind of data that you can look for whilst you're doing the MRI scan of a prospective candidate.
1: Of a candidate. so. You're looking at obviously things like, well, you, you've, you've referenced OMG, you know, we that's one of the tools that I use. So you're looking at desire, commitment, responsibility, motivation. Are they coachable? Which is very important for us to know. Can they figure it out, you know, or do they need their hand held? Do they have a will to sell in the first place? How do they Um, you know grade or score against that 2.2 million people around the world in b2b sales and what are their selling competencies from hunting right through to closing consultative value qualification and looking at you know the way we're selling now what about social selling what about sales technology some of the things that are more become very important over the last couple of years. And that's why this data is being validated on a regular basis as well, because the landscape and the selling environment is changing all the time. And it's obviously, it's gone to much more digital. So it's understanding the selling competencies, but also understanding some of their their own infrastructure, if you like, internally. You know, how do they look at sales? Do they have a need for approval or not? Is that something they're aware of Mm. if you have it? Do they handle rejection? Are they comfortable talking about money? Do they have some maybe limiting belief system in place that's going to get in the way of sales? That's not something you can put someone on a training course for. They need support. They need coaching. They need good management and good leadership to help them perform in that role.
0: Could not agree more just music to my ears. Okay. So let's talk about building right foundations with building the right team, because hiring one person is hard enough. Hiring a team is an entirely different level. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about that.
1: So I guess there's there's two things there, because you could be a startup, startup founders, and really starting from scratch and building out that sales force. I think the couple of really important points there is your first hire is a salesperson, not a sales manager, because that person doesn't have any salespeople to manage right now. Mm -hmm. You need sales. You need revenue coming into the organization. Unless of course the founder is, you know, a qualified, if you like sales manager, you need salespeople. A lot of the founders that we work with are trying to hire sales managers Sales managers that may have been experienced in hiring and managing salespeople, but not experienced or any good at selling. So really think about what is the objective? What do you need to do now? Not in a year, not in two years time, but right now and get those salespeople in place. But Ideally, look for salespeople that have either management experience and, and competencies or at least the will to develop and coachability so that you can grow them within the organization as you grow this team. Or if they're an amazing salespeople, maybe that's where they should stay. And you bring in a manager at a later day above them. Not every salesperson wants to be a sales manager and not every salesperson can be a good sales manager. And I think founders really need to think about that differently because a lot of them, and obviously not all, but a lot of them are trying to bring in this sales director, business development director, who has maybe been a director elsewhere, but hasn't sold anything for 10 years. And then use a data driven approach again, to back up the interview process and everything else you do. Don't waste your time on candidates that are not going to perform. Don't interview 50 people, interview five where there's some predictive validation on them. Then if we look at larger organizations that already have an existing team, again, let's do an MRI, let's figure out the inners, what's really going on right now. A lot of the time, companies get us involved looking at revenue growth and they make the assumption that revenue growth means new sales hires, new market share with new sales hires, instead of understanding that probably each and every single person in that team has an opportunity score, maybe more than a hundred percent if they give them what they need. So instead of jumping into recruitment as a way of fixing things and hiring and firing left, right and center, which we see all the time, let's figure out what's really going on in the organization where the organization wants to go and then understand if you are going to hire, why are you hiring? What are the gaps in the competencies? Or if you are looking to enter a new market, a new sector, a new region, make sure that the role specification set for this new job matches that, not an internal sales role based in London, which are two very different things there's a few things
0: there. Uh, absolutely. And again, I cannot stress it, the importance of doing the heavy lifting before you start that process. Often, you know, the last 17, 18 years, I've been uh, in the world of training. But if I look back, so often, the wrong people were going to be trained. If they needed training, that was also a moot point. And uh, as I've got older, I've been far more judicious about whether or not I would take on a training client. Now that I'm out of the training world and I'm buying in resource salespeople, managers, uh, marketing, and so on, the questions broadened for me. And I started to realize just how often the real problem was probably something else. Because the, the reality is that 70% of learning actually occurs post-training in the field, in the real world. And far too few sales training organizations hold themselves to account for the outcome that they were originally brought in to help resolve. And L&D departments measure training on the basis of the smile sheets at the end and on the basis of retention, not whether someone can implement what they learned. Out in the field, in the real world, with real life, breathing, living human beings who are customers or prospects. And often they don't even know what their customer's journey is. So they only see a tiny fraction of it. Their marketing is completely skewed with because it's often driven by the emotion and whatever the the be in the bonnet of the founder or the marketing manager or marketing director has. I remember talking to one company and uh, they were in the apparel space and they were convinced or the CMO was convinced that they were an adventure brand. But actually when the analysis was done, turns out that the people who bought their clothes, who were the most loyal customers who'd stopped buying, bought their clothes because they wanted to look sophisticated whenever they went out in the evenings with their family. And they couldn't give a damn about the adventure brand. And as a result, uh, in one territory, sales went up $62 million in a quarter. Wow. Yeah. Now, far, far too few leaders are taking the time to step back and ask the real questions. What is it we're trying to achieve? What are the outcomes we're aiming for? What are our choices? What are our options in terms of getting there? Because you can fix all manner of sales problems with marketing, with technology, with training, with recruitment, with coaching, with better managers. And the problem is that very often, they don't ask themselves the difficult searching questions. The most important one is, am I the problem? So tell me this, in terms of blind spots where, and again, you don't have to name names, although that would obviously be very funny. There must have been occasions where you've come across a leader who is actually the bottleneck.
1: Absolutely. On more than one occasion. The great thing now is I back up what I'm saying with some data. So it's not all, you know, just my opinion. But, you know, when I first started in consultancy back in 2015 and prior to that, I was employed. I came across a number of leaders or managers, I would probably call them. I don't think, I think leadership needs to be earned. So managers that were absolutely the problem, managing directors, mostly owner managed businesses at that time where they were getting in their own way and they really needed somebody externally to come in with a fresh view. That was willing to give them the bad news. Now, being a nurse, I was used to people as they receive bad news and telling someone that they're a shit sales leader isn't as bad as being in a room while someone finds out they've they've got cancer, for example. So for me, I see it as my duty to give them the truth because I need to help them and I cannot help them if I don't give them the truth. So sometimes it can be the managing director or the CEO, but Some of the ones that have been a little bit even, I'd say, more awkward for me is when I'm sitting in the boardroom and I'm next to the CEO and I've had lots of previous conversations with the CEO and I'm sitting there thinking, your vice president of sales is your problem. The CEO is blaming the sales team, the sales managers. You get into that boardroom and you realize very quickly. Now, before, that was a very difficult conversations to have Especially if they just spent an absolute fortune hiring this individual, because I think the the average tenure of a sales VP is like fourteen months, not very long. So that was awkward. But now, again, because I'm asking all my clients to do the MRI and I have the data to back up, it's not my opinion. It's data driven insight, and that is very difficult for people to ignore. And we often get pushback. Oh, I don't, I don't like this. What it's saying about me here. I say, okay, so you don't like all the good stuff either. Oh no, that's okay. I was like, well, you can't have it both ways. You know, <laughs> you either trust it or you don't trust it. Well, so yeah, you get, you so, get there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, self-delusion. I think is uh, we're, we're sadly we're going to have to wrap up, but I think a lot of people are blighted by a high se- uh, sense of self-importance and what they're also blighted by is a volitional deafness and blindness to their own shortcomings. And I think what's really lethal is leaders who do not have a voice of reason and someone who will give them a good slapping around and truth-telling. And so if you are a sales leader and you do not have a coach or a mentor, And someone who will objectively tell you the uncomfortable, unvarnished truth. You are doing yourself, your business, your people, your customers, your shareholders a massive, massive disservice. Sarah, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been really fascinating. I would love to have you back. Tell me this you've got a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Sarah, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you give her that you know she would have probably ignored because she knew everything back then?
1: I think that, you know, people will take you seriously. Because when when I first left nursing, you know, I only had, when I set up myself, a couple of years of experience in business. I was a young female in a very male-orientated technical world. And I had a lot of self-doubt back then. And I think if I could go back, I would just tell myself, you know, just go for it. Believe in yourself. People will take you seriously because you do know what you're talking about. You've still got a lot to learn and I still do now, but, you know, just go for it. Don't let that fear of, you know, the transition from nursing into business, lack of years of experience hold you back because you're doing it with purpose. You know, it's a purpose driven um, decision to go into this profession and therefore, you know, you're doing it for the right reasons and it's OK to make mistakes.
0: Uh, absolutely. And let's face it, none of them were fatal. It's nope. not like it here, in the trauma room.
1: Here. I actually I've got it here. I just this is all the money from this goes to charity. But I just co-authored a book called Purposeful People. And in that I share my experience from nursing into sales. And that's, you know, it's not been fatal <laughs> for me but Absolutely. still very challenging.
0: Excellent, Sarah. Well, Purposeful People. Purposeful People.
1: I'll send you a copy, Marcus. Uh, it's all right. I'll buy a copy. That's fine.
0: So that's by Sarah Downs and?
1: Oh, there's 20 of us. We got one oh, chapter right. each. So we, we got Amazon selling, but I'm not sure I can call myself an Amazon best selling author. Of course you can. Two and a half thousand words are my own, but it was compiled by Chris Patton, who is an amazing guy. I'll just show you there excellent and there's 20 of us from all around the world all different backgrounds and all really passionate about great leadership
0: wonderful okay so apart from purposeful people what would you recommend people read if they want to get better at being a sales leader
1: i think well for reading gosh there's so many out there some of my favorite is probably daniel daniel pinks book, love his stuff. But then we have leadership and then we have sales and there's some great content out there on leadership. I'm a podcast girl and audio, audio books, but certainly podcasts. And you know, after yourself inviting me onto your podcast, Marcus, I've been listening to a lot of the episodes before this one. And I've, I've learned a lot and I'm going to continue. I think you have like three, is it 300 episodes? Uh,
0: about 350. Yeah. We'll be 400 before uh, the summer's over.
1: That's crazy. I'm only at 50, not even 50 on my podcast. Well,
0: thank you very much.
1: i to go to catch well,
0: up. I, I'm going to recommend a book that everybody should read. It's called Who? The A Method for Hiring by Jeff Smart and Randy Street. Very, very good book.
1: It's always good to have a book recommendation. There's so many. I'm awful at this question. Everyone asks me and I've got so many going through my head at once that I can't choose.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Sarah, how can people get hold of you?
1: LinkedIn is probably the best option for me. I live on LinkedIn and I am on Instagram, but that's purely for the podcast, really podcast brand. So, LinkedIn private message is always best. Okay. And I can also give you my email address to be show notes.
0: So, sarah at D O Q A R U.com.
1: That's correct.
0: Excellent. Sarah Downs, thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Marcus. Appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast.
0: My pleasure. So, this is Marcus Kalki signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful and helpful, then please like, comment, share, and do subscribe. And if you feel generous uh, or not so generous, give us an honest review on Apple or Google podcasts. One star, five stars, whichever in between, happy with that. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company and you're really committed to growing your business and achieving genuinely sustainable profitable hypergrowth so that you don't have to sell your soul to vultures, speculators and gamblers dressed up as investors, and you want staff across your entire revenue operation who love coming to work, who love helping customers solve their problems, and customers who love buying from you and come back year after year, decade after decade, then let's hop on a call for a quick conversation. My email is marcus at lastcom In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.